into the Old Testament and the little books, the minor prophets. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. We are looking at the prophecies of the prophet Micah at a significant time in the history of God's people under the Mosaic Covenant. That covenant, found in the books of Moses, of course, spelled out um, there, can be stated in fairly simple terms. The Mosaic Covenant basically says if they are faithful and obedient to God, who rescued them from Egypt, he will bless them far beyond the level of blessing experienced by any people at any time ever on the earth. But if they are unfaithful to God, as God, and disobey him, they will be punished as the people who lived in the promised land before them were swept away by conquest. So faithfulness, blessing, unfaithfulness, judgment. Well, one does not need to read the Old Testament very long to see that unfaithfulness was the norm then. Soon after Joshua and the generation of the conquest died away, the Israelites began to drift They left the conquest incomplete, for one thing. That meant they left the Canaanites in the area practicing all of their abominable practices, religious practices, and they started to pick up on those. Those practices began to find their way into the life of Israel. And it didn't take long before the Bible's description of the life of Israel was this, the book of Judges. The theme of the book of Judges is what? And every man did what was right in his own eyes. So whatever anybody just thought was right, that's what they did. Does that sound familiar as a cultural mandate? God was not their king. Their own whims, their own preferences, their own moods ruled, and it became a living nightmare. Soon they wanted kings so they could be like the other nations and also to try to suppress some of the rampant wickedness which strangely came into being in their time of doing whatever was right in their own eyes. So David eventually became God's chosen king after, after Saul, and then Solomon. And then after Solomon, because Solomon let idolatry creep into his own life through his foreign wives, the nation split. So you had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. North and south, Israel with the capital Samaria, Judah with the capital Jerusalem, where the temple was. Now, Samaria found a political as well as religious reason to move toward idolatry. What do you do when your people's religious life is centered around a temple that is in the capital of your enemy? That's a problem, isn't it? There was always a sort of illegitimacy to the kingdom of Israel because God's temple was in Jerusalem and Judah. So what do they do about that? Well, to worship the Lord God, Israelites would have to travel to Jerusalem, the capital of the enemy. So the northern kings immediately set up two alternative worship centers. One in the northern tip of the kingdom of Israel and one sort of near the southern border where it bordered Judah and Israel. And they put, guess what, golden calves there. That old story. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 26, it says, Jeroboam, the man that followed Solomon in the northern kingdom, said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. 
If this people that go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. And he said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that you brought up from the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made the houses on high places and made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. So he was making priests out of people that had no claim to the priesthood. And as bad as this is, that was just the beginning. And that was a couple hundred years before Micah's time. As we saw last week, every perverse religious practice of Canaanite religion found its way into Israel and then into Judah. The only difference between the two nations was that the northern kingdom was ceaseless in its wickedness. No king there attempted to serve the Lord. In the south, there were occasional good kings, and those served with varying degrees of success trying to make reformation. Micah lived at that time when God had determined to bring the northern kingdom to an end. God reveals the future to the prophets. And Micah saw and explained in the clearest terms the doom of Samaria. Let's read verse 6 again that we saw last week. I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country, planting places for a vineyard. I will pour her stones down into the valley and will lay bare her foundations. So we're talking about cities laid flat. The future is as vivid and real in the mind and the heart of a prophet as though their predictions had already happened. I mean, they see it by God's miracle. So very often the experience of the prophet, the emotional response to what they have seen in their mind is as strong as if the event had already occurred. Micah's response is one of extreme sadness, mourning. Verse 8 of chapter 1 begins the second portion of the first prophecy, and it begins with Micah's own emotional state. Verse 8, he says, Because of this, I must lament and wail. I must go barefoot and naked. I must make a lament like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. He is in mourning. And the amazing thing about the prophecy experience is that in Samaria they are carrying on like nothing will ever interfere with their good time. They're just going on like they always did. They've been doing what they've wanted for generations and nothing's happened. I don't see any judgment. You guys are always saying we're going to be judged. There's no judgment. They did that for quite a while. These prophets... They've always been around, right? Go back to Moses. There's only one God, they say. Repent. How tiresome. What an old message. We have wealth. We have plenty. We can indulge our whims, our desires, and nothing will happen. That's exactly where they were. It was a prosperous time. But it did happen. Last week we read the account in 2 Kings chapter 17 of the fall of the kingdom of Israel. God gave his people into the hands of a brutal oppressor as he had the perfect right to do, being God. He waited a very long time 
And they decided that his patience was a license to do wrong. So they only got worse. So their time is up. There won't be more prophets for the northern kingdom. Micah and Isaiah and Hosea would be the last opportunity to hear God's warning. And those men prophesied all at the same time. Micah and Isaiah in the southern kingdom of Judah and Hosea was in the northern kingdom of Israel at the same time. As Micah sees in the prophetic vision the end of Samaria, he weeps. But not just for them. His own people are following the same paths. Verse 9, for this is why he's weeping, for her wound is incurable. For it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. So will Judah listen? Will Jerusalem repent? Will God's law finally have the respect that it deserves? He doesn't see that anytime soon, so he mourns. Let's talk about mourning and grief a little bit as regards the godly. What's it all about? Why should a prophet mourn when God is acting according to his own rights and justice and dictates? Well, very simply, it's about the lostness of the world. He is sad over the misery and the waste and the horror of human sin. And it is a sad thing that people choose to be alienated from God, to sneer at God, to despise holiness and mock it and to despise virtue. Believers stand in a very curious relationship to the world around them. We have this, well, if you want to put it in journalistic terms, we have the inside scoop. We know. And that can be a hard thing, because we get it. Knowing what it's all about is granted to us by God's mercy, and salvation brings with it understanding. And so emotionally, then, we're somewhat torn in two directions. On the one hand, we should have overwhelming joy, the joy of our salvation, as David called it in the Psalms. The Apostle Paul says to rejoice always. And we can because God is on the throne and his will cannot be thwarted and he's promised us eternal life in Christ. He is the center of all things. It's all about him. He is and will be glorified in his tender mercies and he will be glorified in his terrible judgments. Even our own sins should not diminish our joy because we've been on the receiving end of saving grace. There's a wonderful moment in the book of Nehemiah which takes place some 200 years after Micah's time. By Nehemiah's day, the southern kingdom had fallen to Babylon. The people had lived in exile. And finally, God has worked to bring his chastened people home home to the promised land. And there's a lot to do to rebuild and to replant and to repent. And they're going through that process. In Nehemiah chapter 8 is the record of a revival under the scribe Ezra who stood before the assembly of Israel, it says. It says he stood on a platform and had a wooden structure built, just like this one or something like this one. And he unscrolled the law of Moses and he read and explained it from morning to midday. So be glad we'll be out of here by noon. But what he did was exactly what we're doing in this very moment, reading and explaining the text. It was the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Trumpets, I mean, and they began it with a long 
expository preaching straight from the Word of God, bringing God's Word out and saying what it meant. And if he read and explained Moses, then not only did the people hear the law, but all the conditions of the covenants as well. How God would bless if they obeyed and curse if they did not. And by preaching the word, which we still do today, the people gained understanding. And you know what happened? Their hearts were broken. Just hearing God's word read. And it says they wept. They wept over their past, over their people's failure, over their own personal failures. But Nehemiah and Ezra, seeing genuine contrition and tears and humility in the people, told them not to weep anymore. They were home now. It was a day of deliverance and restoration. And this is what the text says, Nehemiah 8 verse 9. It says, Then Nehemiah, who was the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat and to drink and to send portions and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. So the godly rejoice in God's saving grace and they weep for sin. That's exactly what Jesus said to do in the first opening words of the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So while we may weep appropriately, for sin is a grievous thing, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And that's the balance. Christianity is not a glum faith. Not all sackcloth and ashes, not guilt piled on to more guilt. But hey, if you're guilty... Guilt is a fitting emotion, isn't it? But if God saves you and forgives you and tells you that he delights to grant you a savior, that's cause for feasting, isn't it? Isn't it? Nehemiah 8.10 again. Go eat of the fat, drink of the sweets, and portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So why does Micah mourn? Why does Micah mourn? Why is the prophet grieving? Because there is, on this other hand, sadness. There is great cause for joy in knowing the Lord. But there's sadness because he lived at a time when the dominant reality was to despise God's law. Micah never saw assembled Israel weeping at God's law. He never saw that. Not even in the temple. You know what he saw in the temple? Idols. He saw no repentance. He saw no revival. He saw no faith. There may have been joy in his own salvation, but he was surrounded with wickedness. Last week we looked at what was going on mainly in Samaria. Let's take a look at Micah's historical situation in Jerusalem. Turn back to 2 Kings 
chapter 16. We'll be coming back to Mike in a minute. Second Kings chapter 16. We're going to go back there just so you can get a feeling for what it was like at the, at the top in Judah for 16 years under the rule of Ahaz, the king. And that's when Micah was prophesying. We saw verse 3 last week. Let's look at that again. Talking about Ahaz, it says, He walked in the way of the kings of Israel and even made his sons pass through the fire. He burned his children to Molech, the f- pagan deity according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. Then in verse 7, Ahaz makes a political alliance with tiglath Pileser. That's a good name. Now, those of you that are still thinking of having more children, <coughs> tiglath Pileser, it just kind of sings, doesn't it? He was the king of Assyria. And he makes an alliance with him. So Damascus, uh, I mean, he's the king of Syria. Uh, Damascus is allied with Israel. Assyria now is allied with Judah. So you've got this little northern enclave here. Assyria, Assyria which is the big power, makes, they make a deal with uh, the kings in, in Judah, Ahaz. In verse 7 it says, So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and deliver me from the hand of the king of Aram and from the hand of the king of Israel who are rising up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. Here's God's gold. You can have it because you'll give me more protection than he will. That's what's in his heart. So the king of Assyria listened to him and the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and captured it and carried the people of it away into exile to Kerr and put resin to death. That was the king in Damascus there. Aram, that's modern-day Syria. So it worked. Things are going Ahaz's way. And he decides to meet the Assyrian king face-to-face in Damascus. And when he does that, he sees something. Verse 10, it says, Now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw the altar which was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest the pattern of the altar and its model according to all its workmanship. There was some pagan altar there in Damascus, and he said, Now that's an altar. You know, that thing we've got in Solomon's temple, that, that thing down there is, is inferior and, uh, you know, this, this is a nicer looking, something about it just struck his fancy. So, even though in the Old Testament, you know, God had specifically told Moses how to make the altar, I mean, the exact detail. In fact, all the instruments in the tabernacle were made in exact detail to God's instructions. In fact, it says in the Bible, in the, in the books of Moses, over and over again, and they did it exactly as God had said. I mean, it says that over and over and over again. They did it exactly as God had said, because they were being obedient. So here's King Ahaz goes, you know, I don't like the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. Let's just change that. We'll do better. I got my own ideas. It's like trading spaces in religion. He's going to redecorate the temple. He just likes the way it looks. So he's literally making up his own religion. In fact, he has God's altar and, and the bronze laver, which was there for ceremonial washings. Remember the bronze laver? It's sat on the backs of 
life-size oxen. This giant structure for water and the priest would wash in there and it sat on the backs of these oxen. It's a huge thing. He had to go up steps to get to it. He didn't like that so he had that cut off and brought down and moved out the oxen and just moved stuff around. He just did it. Now God designed that stuff. It really wasn't his to fool with, was it? But you know, when you burn your children to the idols, I mean, it's not like a big deal to move furniture, I guess. He'll do anything. The book of Second Chronicles gives us more details. You might want to flip ahead a little bit to there. Second Chronicles chapter 28. Verse 19. It says, For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had brought about a lack of restraint in Judah and was very unfaithful to the Lord. Now, it calls him king of Israel. By this time, um, when he's sort of thinking ahead here. He's the king of all of Israel. I mean, that's his legitimate right. Don't think the northern kingdom. He's the king of the southern kingdom. And once the northern kingdom was gone, the, whole, the southern kingdom was kind of called Israel again in some ways, sometimes in the Bible. You'll see that in a little while. So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. He was unfaithful to the Lord, verse 19 says. So verse 20 says, the king of Assyria just changed his mind. You see, that's what happens when you trust in mankind, right? They can change their minds. You know, uh, I like conquering Syria, and I like conquering the northern kingdom. Why not take the southern kingdom too? Why, why let this little punk uh, have an alliance with me? I'm bigger and stronger, and I, I think I'll just take his too. Although Ahaz took a portion out of the house of the Lord and out of the palace of the king and the princes and gave it to the king of Assyria, it did not help him, verse 21 says. Verse 22. Now in the time of his distress, the same king Ahaz became yet more unfaithful to the Lord. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, his new, his new altar, which had defeated him and said, Because the gods of the kings of Aram helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they became the downfall of him and all Israel. Moreover, when Ahaz gathered together the utensils of the house of God, he cut the utensils of the house of God in pieces, and he closed the doors of the house of the Lord and made the altars for himself in every corner of Jerusalem. Jerusalem looked like any pagan city with altars everywhere to deities of various kinds. And in every city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoke the Lord, the God of his fathers, to anger. Can you see why Micah would be so grieved? with all this going on? Joy in the Lord? Yes. Sorrow for the world, though. I think the godly individual with their eyes open will experience the reality of both of these feelings. Mourning and sorrow is part of the lot of the righteous. In fact, Peter tells us that while the man named Lot lived in Sodom, Peter says he felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. He wasn't having a good time living in Sodom. He moved there because he thought it would improve his condition, his lot in life. But it was so wicked, he just was sad all the time. He was tormented in his soul, not because he was tempted by them. He just couldn't stand seeing it every day. So... He had grief. The Lord Jesus, too, is called by Isaiah a man of sorrows, right? 
and acquainted with grief. We see that in Matthew 23 where Jesus coming up over the hill. Jerusalem sits nestled in some hills and has some surrounding hilltops like the Mount of Olives and places like that. He looked out over the city and obviously grieved by her unbelief. He cries out, Matthew 23, 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And of course that was true. It's exactly what came to pass. The Romans, just a few years later, made Israel cease to exist as a nation until 1948. So for almost 2,000 years, they were just wiped off the face of the earth as a nation, just a, a scattered people. And Christ grieves over that. It is right to grieve over the lost. How can we not do so? But we must not be locked into grief because our strength is where? In the joy of the Lord. God has redeemed us. He has called us to himself. His glory is our very life. And as John Piper likes to say, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. But for Micah, it is a time to mourn. Let's look again in a little bit more detail at Micah chapter 1. Now verse 8, he says, because of what he has seen, he must lament and wail. I must lament and wail. I must go barefoot and naked, he says. He expresses his grief verbally. He laments and he wails. And in the way he dresses, as is most cultures, you know, there's some symbolic way to express your grief externally. It's kind of falling away in our culture like everything's falling away. There's almost no rules anymore about anything that govern life. But in Western culture, it used to be wearing black, right? You'd, like if you lost your spouse, you'd wear black for a year or something like that to show your mourning. Among the Jews of Micah's day, it was going without shoes and not bothering to dress. Now, naked, of course, doesn't mean stark naked. People can walk around stark. Oh, I'm in mourning. <laughs> you know, like they're in a nudist colony or something. Naked means, just like it means in our time, it can mean stark naked, but it can also mean inadequately clothed, like go and clothe the naked, right? You don't mean naked people. You mean people that are threadbare, right? That have rags and in inadequately clothed people. When you talk about the poor being hungry and naked, you don't mean they're nudists. You mean they're threadbare. And here it is going without shoes and without the outer garment that goes over your basic tunic. So you've just got your basic, basic garment on without any adornment at all outside of that, which would be normal, and you're barefoot. So you look like you just got up, you know, in the morning, that kind of thing, like, like um, you're just totally unkempt. And that's the idea. The look is that of one who hasn't bothered to dress. He doesn't think about how they look. Why? Because their heart is so consumed with grief. That was their cultural, culture's way of expressing grief and sorrow. So the mourning like ostriches and lamenting like jackals, that too, is, uh, those are sounds. There's some sound that jackals made and some sound that ostriches made that was proverbial in the ancient Near East as, as sounds of groaning. Even the book of Job uses those two um, animals in the exact same way. Jackals and ostriches and the sounds they make to express mourning. That's Job chapter 30, verse 29. So all of the unmistakable signs of mourning and grief characterize the prophet Micah. So he goes out of the house, he walks into town, he gives God's message, and he doesn't have any shoes on. And he doesn't have his tunic on. He doesn't have his turban on. He doesn't, he's not dressed. 
And, he starts, and people are like, what are you doing walking around like that? I'm in mourning. Why are you in mourning? Because the sin of Israel has come even to the gates of Jerusalem. Our people are disobedient to the Lord. Why aren't you mourning? See, it's a great way for a prophet to express in a visual way what he's saying. So all the unmistakable signs of mourning and grief characterize him. Why? Verse 9. For, that's a purpose word there, her wound is incurable. Talking about Samaria now. Her wound is incurable. They're doomed. And for, the second line, it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. That is why the incurable wound of Samaria marks Judah as well. Rampant idolatry, the very things we read about in Kings and Chronicles. That's what's going on. So the saying in verse 10 then, verse 10 says, Tell it not in Gath. Gath is a prominent, powerful Philistine city. Just don't let them know. Don't let them know. That's Judah's enemy. Don't let them see, says Micah. Don't weep before them or the enemy of God's people will rejoice because Judah is doomed. Now these other cities that mark the end of the, from here on, this chapter, chapter 1 here, they're all Judean cities. And Micah has plenty of advice for them. If we read this, these verses casually from verse 10 on down to verse 16, you'll get the general idea that Judean cities will suffer certain kinds of deprivation and oppression. But if you lived then and you knew the map, if you will, if you knew where these cities were and the order that he gives these, and if you spoke Hebrew, you would find this portion of the prophecy very vivid and very specific and scary. He lists a series of cities which, um, again, if you knew the lay of the land, tend to follow the natural route of an invading army. So as he starts to list these off, it's a path of conquest. He does not mention the enemy at this time, but at a later time in the book of Micah, he will. It's Babylon he's talking about. Some scholars think he's talking here about the conquest of Assyria, when they did literally get up to the gate of Jerusalem, and then the king after Ahaz, who was a godly king, God spared Jerusalem for another day. But because of the way he says about exile at the end of verse 16, I think he's talking about the future when Babylon comes. Maybe both. Hebrew speakers back then, though, would be um, very open-eyed to these words as well, for the listing of the cities and their doom are all in a, a form of Clever word plays. Very common in Hebrew culture to play with words. Do little tricks. For example, verse 10. At Beth La'afra, roll yourself in the dust. And we go, okay, the people at Beth La'afra are going to roll themselves in the dust. Well, the name of the town means dust town. See, Dusty's Dustyville or something. So tell the people at Dustyville to roll in the dust. That's another mourning thing, covering yourself with dirt, part of that unkempt thing. It's another way to express grief. Verse 11, Go on your way, inhabitant of Shafir, in shameful nakedness. Now that's stripped naked. He's talking about. Shafir means beautiful. The Assyrians and the Babylonians carved in their walls pictures of their conquests. 
The Assyrians have pictures of Assyrian soldiers holding people stretched out, one guy holding the arms, the other guy holding the ankles, while another guy flays the skin off of people and just peels it off and strips, having a good time. I mean, all of that stuff that they did, you see. What they did with their captives was strip them naked and put a hook, a ring through their, through their lip or through their, their mouth, and then they'd hook cords into it and, and tie them all together and drag them off to these other lands. And that's what he's talking about. Beautiful city, you'll be stripped naked. The inhabitants of Za'anan, which means departure, they will not depart. There's no escape. The inhabitant of Beth Azel, which means near house, he will take you from its support. You won't be near anymore. Can you see the pattern? It's very arresting. It gets your attention. The first hearers or readers of Micah were, were probably waiting when he started to say this to hear what he says about their city. Verse 12, for the inhabitant of Marath, which means bitter town, Marath becomes weak, waiting for good. Why? Because a calamity has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Verse 13. Harness the chariot to the team of horses, O inhabitant of Lachish. She was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, because in you were found the rebellious acts of Israel. Now, Lachish is an interesting town because they found it, they've excavated it, rather fully. It was a very powerful, fortified Judean city, one of their big war cities, strongly fortified, walls and garrisoned. The archaeologists have found the very burn layer, they call it, from the 6th century B.C. when Babylon destroyed it, which is what Micah is prophesying is going to happen right here. And in that pile of rubble in the burn layer, there are famous letters Written, they're called ostraca. They're written not on paper, which would not have survived. They used to write letters to each other on broken pieces of pottery. It's just a convenient thing to write on, and you can't do anything with a broken piece of pottery, so what do you do? Make a letter out of it. And those last. They last forever. So we've dug up those things. You know, archaeologists have, and we've got all that stuff. They found 21 letters written in Lachish at the time of the Babylonian conquest. Many of them are from an outpost soldier writing to his superior officer in Lachish about seeing the burning fires of the enemy on the horizon. I mean, it's scary stuff. And one of the things he says in one of those letters, he mentions the warning prophet and the words that had been spoken. Verse 14 is a little bit difficult. It's talking about cities lost to Israel's position. Oh, let me get back to Lachish for a second there. Lachish ends up being wiped out, obviously, in the future. It was very powerful. The words he says about it, harness the chariot to the team of horses, that's to escape. The, le- the verb he uses is one of getting away. O inhabitant of Lachish, harness the chariot to the team of horses, not to go out to fight, but to run. He's saying that's, that's their doom. But now verse 14, he's talking about the cities that are lost to Israel's possession. Moreshep Gath, which means betrothed of Gath, that's Micah's hometown. Send her parting gifts. Send parting gifts to the betrothed because she won't be yours anymore. Akzib. Akzib means a stream that is dried up. Like in the summer, a traveler might come looking for water and be disappointed. Israel king, Israel's kings will be disappointed if they think they'll find a city there. 
the houses of Achzib will become a deception to the kings of Israel. They think they'll have the city and they won't. Verse 15, Moreover, I will bring on you the one who takes possession, O inhabitant of Marashah. The glory of Israel will enter Adullam. The conqueror will take possession of Marashah, which means hereditary city. That means it should belong to you, but it's going to belong to them. See? The glory of Israel, her rulers will enter Adullam. That's a city well known for its caves. They're going to be hiding in caves. Now in verse 16 we have another sign of mourning. Shaving the head. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of the children of your delight. Extend your baldness like the eagle for they will go from you into exile. Your children will go into exile. So why does Micah mourn? Because these are his people, his countrymen, his hometown even. And I hope as we enjoy God's goodness to us, our own salvation, our blessings, even our trials as they press us toward God and knowing him better, we will remember that those who don't know him are in a different position from us. And the wrath we can no longer fear because of Christ still waits for them who have no Savior. That's a sad thought. Very sad indeed. So don't forget them. They need your prayers, they need your compassion, they need your gentle persuasion to heed God's call to salvation today before it's too late. There is a day of reckoning. Micah's people did not believe that. But the fact that we can study their final thoughts in a burned layer of a long-gone city shows that he was telling the truth. So don't hesitate when God calls or when he warns. When he offers you salvation and new life, grab it, embrace it. He's ready to save. You have to humble yourself and embrace him as the king, the ruler of all things, the moral governor of the universe whom you've offended. But he's provided a savior for you, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Embrace him. And the Bible says his righteousness becomes yours. And God sees you as clean and ready for heaven. That's the good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being such a clear communicator of these great truths. You could have left us in the dark in our sin, but you chose not to do that. You've given us every opportunity for repentance and redemption. And Lord, we pray that we would grasp that. And Father, I pray that our hearts would also be broken for those that don't know you, that we would have a compassion for them as Micah had for his people. Help us in our prayers to be faithful to pray for them. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing that last hymn, uh, number five.